Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, backlash to Georgia's new voting law continues. On Friday, Major League Baseball announced plans to pull this summer's All-Star game from Truist Park out in Cobb County. But Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he's not backing down. We will not be intimidated, and we will also not be silenced. Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, and Delta may be scared of Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden, and the left, but I am not, and we are not as Meanwhile, we'll talk dollars. Coming up in just a moment, Cobb County Commission Chair Lisa Cupid joins me with how the All-Star Game not taking place will have a financial consequence on the region. Also, a conversation with Emory University's Gwazetta business professor Ray Hill and the effectiveness of economic boycotts, or maybe the non-effectiveness of economic boycotts. But first, our daily update on the COVID-19 pandemic. Another 655 new coronavirus cases were confirmed in Georgia yesterday, bringing the total of confirmed cases since last March to 855,039 confirmed coronavirus cases. 16,749 Georgians have died due to the virus. And the number of hospitalizations now has surpassed 58,000. It's now 59,094. Meanwhile, efforts are underway to help more Georgians get vaccinated. So far, 4.1 million vaccine doses have been administered in the state so far. That's according to the Department of Public Health. And for context, nationwide, the U.S. continues to average about 3 million, maybe a little bit more than 3 million vaccine doses daily. It's now still, despite this progress, public health experts are urging Americans to continue to take precautions. They warn the U.S. could see a spike in new cases like many European nations due to the new contagious variants variants of the virus. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, as I sit behind the mic, I'm Rose Scott. As I mentioned earlier, in case you didn't know, there is fallout from Georgia's new voting law. It continues. And now, since Major League Baseball has announced its decision to move this summer's All-Star game from Georgia, everyone has something to say. So joining me now to share more on the economic impact of this decision, well, Cobb County Commission Chair Lisa Cupid. Chairwoman Cupid, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, what has your weekend been like? Oh, it, it wasn't the Easter I expected. I can mm-hmm. tell you that there has been a lot going on over the past week um, since we started to hear concern about the All-Star Game being in Cobb. And as you know, a lot has transpired since then. Well, before we get into the economic impact and projections and all that, did the commission or to your knowledge, any Cobb official have any dialogue with Major League Baseball officials regarding the voting law and how it might lead to them possibly moving the All-Star game? I did have a conversation with the Players Association. Can you share some of that? What what was that like? What were you all talking about? We determined that we would be limited because we wanted that to be a constructive dialogue. And I thought it was. And certainly I can understand things from their position. I hope they understood things from our position. Um, While they chose to uh, make a decision that did not work for our um, benefit with having the All-Star Game here, I could certainly understand um, the position that they've taken. And the Players Association, according to Major League Baseball, they did consult, have conversations 
with the Players Association, and that led to them making this decision. As you were representing Cobb County, what were your arguments that you were making to keep the game in the region? I had to concede that there are frustrations around this elections bill. And again, the concern about it was not something that I objected to as I realized that even though people may vary on the text, it's the context that makes um, this bill very challenging. Um, nonetheless, we have a shared interest in wanting to see a successful all-star game, not only Major League Baseball, but Cobb County. And we've been working together to make sure that that was going to be um, a fruitful event for all of us, um, certainly considering that we are in a pandemic. And so, um, you know, this certainly took a, a different course and I recognized where they were. But for me, it was how can we make this all-star game that we both had a stake in um, have a constructive and positive impact on something that we found the challenge with. And while, you know, there's a lot of conversation if this should have, you know, turned around baseball, this is part of a, long, a larger context that we've had in Cobb and really Atlanta around having um, constructive and a positive relationship between the business and the political community. And so it was certainly my desire for us to, um, to, to come together to see how we can make this work. There are reports that, according to the Atlanta Braves and some others, saying, look, we could have used this time also as a platform to further discuss the law or talk about, you know, moving forward, how to improve uh, voter rights, et cetera. It was, when you had your conversation with the Players Association, was that, did you mention that? Did you mention, hey, why not take the opportunity then to use it as a platform? Certainly. And that was a conversation I had uh, even prior to that um, Zoom virtual meeting with the Players Association is that, again, while we can be on different sides of this issue and we can recognize that um, this bill does present some challenges, how can we come together? And that's what athletics has done for you know us as a community and a civilization for so long. That's what um, business does. We all have to work and keep a roof over our heads. We are all in this pandemic looking to get out of it. I was looking at where there's commonality to, again, address the concerns, but also look at how we can make this a constructive um, response. Chairwoman Cupid, through your lens, this is your opinion. What do you make of the the new voting law? Hmm. You know, I've been fielding a lot of questions with respect to that. And certainly I recognize there's some challenges that come with accessibility, particularly for our larger counties and some of the limitations that it has for our drop boxes and some of the um, durations that people can um, submit their absentee ballot application in. And, and even the amount of time that we have to process that, you know, there's, there's some concerns. There are certainly some significant financial um, implications for the county that were not called out by way of a fiscal note with respect to this bill. And so this is going to present, you know, what we consider unfunded mandates for us at the local level. So, um, so, yeah. so you see it that there are some financial strengths now that we put on the counties, but from a, if you want to call it voter restrictive or voter suppression or whatever, are there aspects of the bill that you, of the law that you view as being suppressive or oppressive mm -hmm. or restrictive, whatever word Certainly. you want to use? Certainly, you know, and, and that can be measured objectively, right? Um, there are limitations as far as the number of drop boxes that we can have. And that just objectively is going to cut the number down of drop boxes that we had last year um, by about half. And so all of the costs that went into that and the number of people that had access to, to that is going to be limited. And certainly the amount of time that people have to request their ballot is going to um, be limited. And, you know, in reading that bill, there are some um, administrative considerations for us at the local level that do cause some additional concern for us. And so, you know, I could spend a lot of time going through this from a substantive perspective mm -hmm. and, and looking back and certainly looking forward. I hope that there is opportunity to have a productive and constructive dialogue about um, some points of that bill that can be addressed. But I think there's some larger things that we were addressing even prior to this bill coming down um, about how we were going to 
make the all-star game um, be inclusive and considering having having early voting at the stadium you know open this up to um, business opportunities for cob businesses and dbes mm -hmm. these are all things that are still on the table so i can fight this or try to talk about the bill or i can look at what are some things we can do locally to move past it and you of all folks know because cobb county i believe is the third largest third or fourth largest county in in the state here so you know the importance of having as many early voting locations, drop boxes, what have you. And even during the most recent Senate runoffs, I mean, Cobb County sought to close, I think it was five early voting locations and there was outrage. So you understand when it appears that there is some type of measures put in place that could limit access or the ease of voting that there's going to be outrage. Right. Oh, yeah. certainly. And, and you're and you hit the nail on the head. Um, when we do make these type of changes, there is going to be a response. And so, you know, it's surprises me to, for people to be surprised about that response right now, when even leading up to um, the passage of this bill, people were expressing concern and it was very clear that this happened in a partisan way. Uh, but as you acknowledged um, with the runoff election, there were some, ad some administrative burdens that we had in our county mm -hmm. and with all of the um, counts and recounts in recounts, we lost staff that um, kept us from having as many open locations as we wanted to. And regardless of what our concerns were, the public did perceive it differently because at the end of the day, we reduced the number of um, early voting sites. And so this is something that we are sensitive to in our county. We wanna make sure that people have the opportunity to vote. Yes, we want integrity in our elections, but we want accessibility in our elections. And so you know, certainly it's going to be impacted um, as this bill moves forward. And I think I recall your elections chief, Janine Evler, saying that there was a, a shortage of workers um, moving forward. Uh, you Hopefully you all be able to make sure you have enough folks to, to work the, the polling locations. Well, that is something that we were planning to um, rectify and, but when, again, I started reading provisions of this bill, there are some other um, tasks that our mm -hmm. elections office will have to um, put in, you know, to um, have as part of the elections process, which makes me more concerned that there's going to be additional um, burden needed. There's going to be additional staff needed, additional finances needed. And so while we were trying to respond to something in the past, now we need to look to what's at hand to see if we're... Uh, to make sure, not to see, but to make sure that we are going to be ready to respond. And I want to get back to the All-Star Game in a moment, but I want to ask you this, Chairwoman uh, Cupid, the provision that would allow the state legislature with the power or authority, however you want to you know, assess that, to come in and, and make changes or remove you know, county elections chiefs or, or directors or what have you, how do you view that measure? Um. I am very concerned about that measure. Um, there, to me, has always been consideration for local governance at the state level. There is a reason why some things are handled at the local level because of our ability to be responsive. And I've always thought that um, we operated as a partnership um, with counties being a subdivision of the state. And so seeing how that, um, that structure has been modified by way of this bill mm -hmm. causes me great concern, especially when we worked very hard to make sure that we have um, an elections process that's above board while trying to be as responsive to citizens and to concerns that come up um, as we are in the election process that I am hoping that it doesn't result in um, our, um, our staff, our men and women who've been working elections feeling intimidated Mm -hmm. about um, being responsive um, because there are so many provisions that say that if you don't meet certain parameters of this bill, if you have certain delays or certain things come up, then you're going to be subject to this mm -hmm. um, additional layer of review, which to me, um, the way that it's occurring, um, it seems more seems more antagonistic than, than what it's looked like in the past. Fulton County uh, has already said publicly that they are looking into possibly filing a lawsuit as relates mm -hmm. to that particular measure and some others. Okay. You see Cobb County doing that. 
that will be a discussion for our, our elections board. Certainly we are just, you know, trying to get a grasp on all that has taken place over this past week. Mm-hmm. So I, I um, imagine that could be a conversation with commissioners, but I, I think it's premature at, at this moment to say if we're going to take that step. The voice you hear is Cobb County Commission Chairwoman Lisa Cupid. And now we're talking about how Major League Baseball is moving the All-Star game out of Cobb County, out of the Atlanta Braves home park, Truist Ballpark. Uh, George Governor Brian Kemp held a press conference of his own. Uh, Here's what he said about Major League Baseball. Take a listen. They ignored the facts of our new election integrity law, and they ignored the consequences of their decision on our local community. In the middle of a pandemic, Major League Baseball put the wishes of Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden ahead of the economic well-being of hardworking Georgians who were counting on the All-Star game for a paycheck. Let's talk about the economic consequences. Um, Your response to the governor, does he have a valid point? What's frustrating to me about that response is the oversimplification of the broad response and the inability to see that people are looking at this critically and that concerns are reasonable at the same time. And attributing this to, um, I've heard a lot of um, terms that were charged in a lot of his comments. And while I know that there are people in our state who feel that way and can be justified in feeling the way that they do, it's tough when our leadership could be bringing people together and finding out a way that we can positively and constructively work through this to present our state as open for business and welcoming, that we are simplifying our responses to um, cause the, um, further wedges within our um, state. It was estimated uh, by your own, by an official from the Cobb County Tourism Department, that $100 million would be lost with the All-Star Game not being in your region, which and it, it could be for all of Georgia, but this was from uh, uh, Miss Quillen, I believe her name is. Uh, is that a fair assessment? A hundred million dollars? She would have to tell you where she got that number from. We certainly had some projections that um, we received from the Braves organization from Major League Baseball that provided the return that they've had historically. And um, while I, I wouldn't. I can't necessarily um, speak to or against the veracity of that number. Mm -hmm. I do know that we were expecting a significant return on having this event here. And it's very interesting. I was in the city of Atlanta today and I was speaking to a business owner who was talking about some of the things that were coming his way um, by way of having the game in Cobb County, Mm -hmm. which again, as, as you noted, that this was going to have a return, not just for the county, but for others in our metro area and possibly state, which has been part of my basis for us being temperate temperate about the conversation about boycotting and realizing that this hurts us as well as we, you know, meanwhile we recognize the challenges with the bill and that hurts us. I think that we can end up cannibalizing ourselves on so many different fronts if we don't see how we can pull these um, issues um, together and see how we work through all of them. Right now I see everybody digging their heels in. One side is going to boycott and the other side is going to boycott. Soon we won't, nobody's going to be supporting anybody as a result of this. And I just do not see this being a positive step forward for not just Kyle, but our state and even our nation when, when I see this type of response. Had the county put out any shout out any books of its own in anticipation of the all-star i mean often you'll see banners and everything i know there was some t-shirts already made up and, and hats my friend sam went and got one i'm like what are you gonna do with it he's like oh it's you know it's it's nostalgia i'm like okay but so how much money do y'all have to put out anything that we have expended we will be looking to see how we can recoup beyond those things that were um, going to be helpful to the county beyond that event um, fortunately, we're still early on. We've just recently passed um, an agenda item to address expenditures associated with this. And so while I'm hoping there has been um, limited um, expenditure thus far, I, I do not think it's unreasonable for us to see how we recruit that. Can you all do anything for those surrounding businesses around the battery? 
you know, as I've shared, Cobb County was in a position to attract this all-star game, which makes me believe that we are still in a position to attract um, something good and positive for our county. And so while this game may not be here, that week I know we had other events planned and Cobb County will always be an attraction for travel and tourism. Um, this is one of our main industries here. And so we will have to realize that uh, even though Major League Baseball uh, made this decision and even though we have lost that game, we have not lost a sense of who we are as a county and what continues to attract uh, many people here to invest and to visit. And finally, a moment ago, you said this is now the point where folks are just digging their heels in and, and laying blame and making accusations and allegations. You said you want folks to use this now, this moment to come together. Well, what does that look like through your lens? What does coming together and what's a, a reasonable, actionable outcome? You know, that's the question of the day, right? Is how do we get past this and move beyond it? I um, always believe that with every challenge, there's opportunity to learn. There's opportunity to gain something from that. And I tend not to believe that our what happens to us that's not good has to remain that way. So I'm hoping that there would be some openness um, from our legislators to see if there's any additional changes that could be made. I'm hoping that our businesses will see what we can do and go back to what we've done to present our county and our state as an opening and open and inviting place. We have to continue to do that. I think um, for our businesses, we can look for ways to support them um, as we go through this and, and let them know that um, we are still in a positive position to come out of this pandemic. They are still valued and um, you know, our, our county and our state are, are still um, good places where many of us have chosen to live. We, you know, I don't think that keeps us from addressing the hardship of this legislation, but I don't think that we use that legislation to care, to um, characterize all of our possibilities. Um, you know, we are much more than that. And um, as we get to um, addressing the concerns with that legislation, let's look to the things that are good about our state and work on addressing those. Governor Brian Kemp blames President Joe Biden, Democratic leader Stacey Abrams. Those on the other side blame the original sponsors of the bill, all Republican, all white. What do you say to both sides? What's the lesson learned here? Hmm. You know, I think that there is always strength when you see people around the table that ne don't necessarily look like you, think like you, because you know you have a balance of you um, looking at the decisions that are made. And that could be whether it's in a governmental end or even on um, the corporate end. Um, so, you know, you could say the backdrop of this already showed the polarity of the decision that was made. But again, I think we have to get past that as leaders. As leaders, we can recognize that we have people who are on opposite ends of the spectrum, but I'd like to think we are responsible for bridging that conversation. We are responsible for determining how we move forward to um, make the best of a situation for everyone. And so, you know, as, as much as it's frustrating to see that type of, um, um, again, the wedges that have been placed um, here in Georgia and, and widened, I still think that as leaders, we have the, we have opportunity to overcome that. Even though there's a big election coming up next year? <laughs> you know, will time will tell. You know, and again, there's there are elections, but they're serving the people of Georgia. And regardless of what goes on every two or four years in the state, every day we're responsible for serving um, the people of Georgia and making sure that this is a healthy and, and great place for people to live and do business in. Serving the people of Georgia. Cobb County Commission Chair Lisa Cupid, thank you so much for taking the time. I believe it's your first interview with us as a Commission Chairwoman. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate yours as well.
And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. There's always excitement when an all-star game is coming to town, right? I think the two biggest are probably the NBA and Major League Baseball. Yeah, the game itself is nice, but let's be really clear. It's about all the extracurricular activities, the fan experience. Even if you don't have a ticket, there's always lots to do when an all-star game comes to town. But Atlanta and Cobb County won't reap the benefits of this year's Major League Baseball All-Star Game, and as Georgia Governor Brian Kemp sees it, here's the reason why. Because Joe Biden and Stacey Abrams have spent days lying to Georgians and the American people. The truth is that Joe Biden hasn't read the bill, and Stacey Abrams is raising millions off the fake outrage that she has created. Now, it's never easy to gauge the exact dollar figure an all-star game brings to a city. Still, Holly Quillen, president and CEO of the Cobb Travel and Tourism, told CNN it's, quote, more than $100 million. Now, if we're talking dollars and cents, what about the calls to boycott corporations that don't publicly speak out against Georgia's law and even pledge to support the federal legislation, H.R. 1? Well, joining me now to discuss all of this is from the Gozetta Business School over at Emory University. He joins me. It's been a while. Professor Ray Hill. <laughs> Professor Hill, thanks for taking the time. Where you been? Oh, <laughs> uh, you haven't asked me back. That's all right. <laughs> Listen, um, let's begin here. I just want to get your reaction to Major League Baseball. This is through your lens, moving the All-Star game. Just all the optics around that. Whoa, all of that. All um, that. Oh, man. Uh, well, i tell you what, I'm going to uh, feed off of your previous guest, because the real shame here it, it, to me is the lack of uh, people getting together and finding out what's what the, what we really want to achieve. So, you know, Governor Kemp has a point here. The Joe Biden terribly mischaracterized the law when he got on his national press conference. And, you know, now we got both sides arguing with each other instead of saying, oh, you're, you care about election integrity? Well, we care about voter access. Let's just focus on, you know, fashioning some sort of response that, that makes sense from both perspectives. And we're not doing that. So, uh, and I, 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 yeah, I understand Major League Baseball's decision, but it, I think that's, that's going to pull us further apart instead of pushing us together. In all my years of covering projected economic impacts of a world-class type sporting event, I've come to realize that I can start a really cool argument among economists about how a dollar amount is gauged. Now, from ticket sales to the vendor on a nearby corner selling T-shirts, I'm going to ask you, Professor Ray Hill, what is the formula to gauge an economic impact of, let's say, a Major League Baseball All-Star game? Because I don't think anybody really knows. Well, I, I tell you one thing, you're, unless you're talking to the consultant who is working to make it sound like a good deal, you're not going to get any disagreement among economists. These numbers are always overstated. So, you know, give you an example. You know, let's say some caterer is catering a party for the around the All-Star game. And so you're paying that caterer ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Well, you know, a large part of that is going to be I'm going to buy some liquor and beer and food. Well, that's that's not economic impact because the the, uh, the what's the economic impact is whether I hire some extra waiters who wouldn't be hired, uh, wouldn't have uh, be working or what the, the profit margin is for the caterer or all those or the extra taxes that, you know, Cobb County uh, collects. But a lot of those costs are, are simply, uh, you know, things that are not going to be would have been consumed anywhere somewhere else and are not really a part of the economic impact. And if you talk about from when, let's say, someone flies into Atlanta and they take an Uber and then they, maybe they go to the hotel or, or where have you or the, the Airbnb or wherever they're staying and everything that sort of trickles down from them using spending money to food and all that, it's just never really there's not a hard concrete number is what you're saying that you no, can really and, project. And you've got to always look at it's the incremental it's. Oh, the Uber driver got one more fare today because the person drove in. That's that's what you've got to look at. Mm-hmm. Now, Cobb County officials have come up with a pretty good number, $100 million. I mean, in the ballpark or a reasonable projection or way off base? No idea. No idea. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, and I said, I'm not going to take the time to, to look at that. We did, you know, uh, had a group of students as one of their projects looked at the uh, the way the ballpark itself was financed, mm-hmm. and those uh, results were quite contrary to the uh, the official story that was coming out of the Cobb County yes. Commission. And folks are still arguing about that. So that's right. Um, <laughs> I want you to take a listen to what Republican State Representative Drew Ferguson 
uh, said during this past Saturday's press conference. He was on that press conference along with Brian Kemp. Take a listen to what he said about corporations. For a corporate CEO to put himself or herself ahead of the men and women that are working to make their company successful. It is unconscionable for them to make statements that will cause harm to Georgia families, which is exactly what they've done. I'm going to ask you this, uh, Professor Hill. Corporations, this is nothing new that corporations have made statements about social issues. I mean, we've seen this before. But what do you make of what Representative Ferguson had to say? Well, um, a a CEO, for instance, of Coca-Cola has a tough job because, um, for instance, the contrary to most people, the most important, the, the, the only stakeholders that the Coca-Cola CEO really has a duty of loyalty to are the shareholders. Okay. Uh, but the Coca-Cola operates in a wider social and political environment. And it would be crazy for the CEO of Coke to ignore that, that larger environment in which Coke works and how they may be affected nationally or internationally by people's perception of the brand and whether, and, and, and not just of the brand, but their ability to attract people who are you know, good and want to work for a company that, uh, that cares about it. So the, you know, Representative Ferguson, I just has to recognize that the CEO of Coke has, uh, it's probably not as narrow a focus as he imagines. And of course there, you know, there's another side to this uh, coin besides uh, the, the harm that may result from, you know, people in Georgia as a result of, you know, the, these boycotts. Well, if you're talking about shareholders, one could point to uh, years ago, obviously, with uh, South Africa and the pressure for so many American companies to to divest, to come out of, of South mm-hmm. Africa, obviously, what was happening there. For many of them, the, the thoughts and concerns of their shareholders took a back back seat to listen. These not oh, only I, national. I don't think, go ahead. No, I don't think so at all. Again, a, a CEO for a, a major public uh, company has got to understand the, the the whole environment in which that corporation works. I'm a big believer. CEOs owe the duty of loyalty to the shareholders. But it would be crazy for a CEO to say, well, I'm just going to ignore the wider political uh, impact or the wider social impact of what I do and the effect on the reputation of the company, because that's it's in the shareholders interest for the, the, the company to have a, you know, a good brand name, a good reputation. That's how you attract good people and you attract good customers. But it, but aren't you just sort of contradicting yourself? Because if you want to do all that, shouldn't uh, is it OK for a corporation to take a stand? And say we're well, not. Go out, go again, ahead. I think you you got to be careful of what you do. But uh, sure, it's it's okay. Again, you don't take a stand because you the the CEO has a political preference to do something. Okay, or the CEO thinks it's the uh, you know uh, has some makes some ethical judgment about it. The CEO makes a decision because he thinks that you know, again in the wider social context. The, the, the shareholders would, would be better off because the, the company does one thing and not another. Do you believe in corporate social responsibility, Professor Hill? Uh, I believe in it in exactly the way I've said, that it, it, for corporations not to be socially responsible is going to end up uh, injuring them as a business. And the, the loyalty that the CEO has to uh, their shareholders means they have got to pay attention to people's perceptions of them as a a uh, responsible corporation aiding society, if you will. That's what, not the problem. Again, we, we, we make it sound like the corporation has to behave ethically, but corporations are not a people. So there's no context in which the corporation behaves ethically. It's a, a question of whether the people in the corporation realize that you know ethical behavior by the 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 senior officers and the board is going to result in uh, making the, the the reputation of that corporation stronger and their business better. But that reputation affects consumer habit. Absolutely. So if consumers Absolutely. feel like if consumers feel like X corporation is not taking a, 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 so, a social responsibility stand, and then that affects the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I, you I see, look, we're, we're in the day we're we're in the in the day of when you see that hashtag don't buy X or boycott X boy, corporations, they they <laughs> they turn around. Well, they don't quickly. like it. But I, I will say, <laughs> you, you know, since, since you're uh, I, I'm not a 
you know, his, historian or political scientist here, but the, you know, you're talking about the economic impact of boycotts and they, they really have, strictly speaking, economically, very small impacts. So, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, there were boycotts of Shell Oil during the time of apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that didn't really affect Shell Oil very much. People didn't stop buying grapes when the United Farm Workers did that. That doesn't mean the, the boycotts didn't have an effect because at the end of the day, United Farm Workers, uh, the, you know, ended up being successful because basically a strike, not mm-hmm. the, the, the boycott of grapes. And the, um, uh, the, you know, apartheid largely came to an end, not because of economic damage done to anybody, but because of the, the, the those boycotts and the sanctions highlighted an almost mm-hmm. unanimous uh, opinion about uh, the, the fact that apartheid had to go. So, you know, Margaret Thatcher was very much against sanctions, but she invested a lot of time and her political capital trying to get Nelson Mandela out of prison and then pushing South Africa. So it was a it was a political event, not really an economic event that, that drove things. I think there's some truth into that. If you just join us, I'm joined by Professor Ray Hill. He's from Emory University's Goizeta Business School. And we're now we're going to really get into the effectiveness of economic boycotts. Then, well, let me ask you this. Then what are those metrics involved when we talk about an effective economic boycott? What does that look like? Well, again, I think the first thing you have to say is an effective boycott, not an effective economic boycott. So I'll, I'll give you another example. Sure. Um, the uh, the, the bo- uh, boycott of buses in Birmingham in 1955, um, you could say it, it had a, a, an adverse effect on the finances of the Bur- city of Birmingham, but that didn't bring about change in Birmingham. What brought about change was the uh, a, a federal court, which desegregated the bus lines, actually in a much broader way than the, the aims of the boycott. Uh, so it wasn't the, it had an economic effect, but it didn't produce any results. Something else produced results. Now, you, I think it's very fair to argue that the, the boycott in Birmingham, because it brought national attention on what was going on in Birmingham and segregation generally, was probably beneficial, but again, it's political. It's not. It's not the economic effect that that really drives things. But it was the boycott, the initial boycott absolutely. that sparked absolutely. everything. Okay, I just want to be clear. That's right. Because you will yeah, get emails. <laughs> you no, get no, emails. I, 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 but I wait. But I'm just saying is you, you you got the wrong person on the show. You should be getting a, talking to a political scientist or historian but because as an economist, but you're, I'm saying. But you, you know, you you are someone who's labeled as let's talk about boycotts and how they are to be yeah. organized and effective, right? Yeah, and all I want to say is that again, you're you have to look. For instance, in uh, it's very hard for me to imagine that the Georgia legislature is going to uh, in anywhere in the near term do anything to change this law. Because now we've got the, you know, as, as your previous guest said, everybody's digging in their heels. Mm-hmm. Does that mean this is uh, an ineffective pro- a boycott? No, because the uh, it, it, it puts a signal to other states, for instance, to be very careful about uh, changing their voter access. So you don't see any benefit then to an, a, quote, boycott or if you want or economic boycott, whatever you want to call it. You don't see, uh, any, you don't see any benefit. No, no, to you're, you, you, you got to be careful here. The, 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 if, if you say the boycott is because I uh, inflict, you know, sort of economic damage and the result of the economic damage is because then people change their behavior. Mm-hmm. Then my reading of the history of boycotts is that doesn't really happen very often. So you're saying but there's the boycott- no economic impact on these brands. Well, there. It, First, it, it, this kind of thing is very little, okay? And okay. even if there were, again, take my example of Birmingham. Yes, it had an economic impact on the city of Birmingham. Did that economic Im- impact on the city of Birmingham cause the city of Birmingham to say, oh, we're going to change the, the, the uh, we're going to desegregate the bus buses? No, that happened somewhere else outside the uh, that immediate chain of, uh, of causation. But the boycott affected the policy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So I'm saying I'm not saying no, don't don't for a minute think that these things uh, don't can't have an effect. Uh, but the, but the, the but to, you know, to say, you know, pretend that somehow people are going to stop drinking Coke or people aren't going to get on Delta Airlines. Uh, well, that's not true. And I think the, the converse is true. If we have some black backlash and someone is saying, well, now that we did this, we're going to take out our fury on Coke and Delta. 
see that happening either. All right, we shall see. I'm going to bring you back too, and we'll see how all this unfolds. From Emory <laughs> University's Guazetta Business School, Professor Ray Hill. You know, last time you were on, someone tweeted and said you sound like Tom Hanks. So I was trying to listen. Uh, maybe a little bit. Well, I am just really disappointed. Think of all the things that have happened since we talked last that I was dying to get on your show and talk about. <laughs> and you haven't asked me back for one of them. Oh, you know what? Talk to your PR people about that. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Professor Hill. Right. I appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. <laughs> Bye-bye. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We always talk about lessons learned. Well, what lessons can be learned from other states when it comes to getting vaccines distributed efficiently and with some equitable measures? Well, recently I talked about all of this with, with Bill Rencher. He's a senior research associate with the Georgia Health Policy Center at Georgia State University. And Tanisa Adimo, assistant project director with the center. Let's go back a little bit and do some reflection. I always love to ask these questions. We think back to last year this time. If someone had said, you know what, we will have not one, not two, but three and maybe four potential vaccines ready for folks. Tanisa, I'll start with you. Would you have believed it? I will say I would have believed it. Yeah. You know, our work, <laughs> I would have wrote, our work has been with rural communities all across the country who first started out. Uh, a year ago, really working with their communities to understand the vaccine, to um, address COVID-19 exposure. Um, and we're all very hopeful at that time that we would be on the other side of COVID with a vaccine very soon. So really glad that we are here at this moment and have more than one vaccine for folks in communities now. All right. Bill, what about you? You would have believed that someone told you this last year? Yes, I would have believed it as well. Um, I think that um, just being in the health, public health field, we know about all kinds of advancements that have been made over the years with vaccines, particularly the development, actually the work that's been done for several years now on a SARS vaccine, mm -hmm. SARS being very similar to the coronavirus. Um, so it wouldn't have surprised me. It, it might've surprised me <laughs> that I'd still be working from home a year from now, mm. but uh, that we'd have a vaccine. No, that wouldn't have surprised me. Now, even with all of this great news about the vaccine, still Georgia has consistently ranked last among states for its COVID-19 distribution plan or even execution. Now, state officials said Georgia had received fewer vaccine shipments than other states that was before. But from your standpoint, through your lens, what are some reasons that you think Georgia continues to rank lower in terms of vaccine distribution? I can't speak specifically to Georgia. The research that we've done uh, looked nationally at um, all states to identify best practices. Um, all states have encountered um, almost all the same challenges that Georgia has encountered. Um, what we have seen in states that have done a really um, good job, at least a good job early on um, in the rollout, mm -hmm. uh, we're talking a couple months ago, um, some of these states already had some infrastructure, some unique infrastructures in place that they were able to leverage. For example, West Virginia and Arkansas both already had an extensive network of independent pharmacies mm -hmm. throughout their state that they were able to partner with to help distribute the vaccine and to avoid some of the red tape that governments encounter when working with national, large national pharmacies. Tanisa, do you want to add anything to that? I was just going to say, in addition to our focus on states, again, our work focused also nationally, but specifically on rural communities. And what we heard from them in terms of the challenges 
that communities were facing rolling out the vaccine. While we didn't focus specifically on Georgia, however, I do believe that there are, uh, based on what we learned, that there are information and inspiration that can be learned about the challenges across our rural communities. And so what we learned, as Bill said, is that the challenges were universal, many of mm -hmm. them, that the demand exceeded the vaccine supply. We also learned that getting appointments was challenging, and not just because there was a lack of openings, but also some populations in rural communities just had difficulty with online registration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we see that across the country, particularly those who may not have internet access or reliable internet access. There's still people without cell phones and computers. Mm -hmm. um, not all of us are technologically savvy to navigate those online systems. Um, and so it has been difficult um, getting appointments and it's been challenging for many people. Tanisa, when you say information, I get that. But you also added inspiration. Yes. Take that further for I our did. listeners. I did. Um, we, it, it has been encouraging to see that communities are thinking strategically about how they are rolling out the vaccine and that they are implementing targeted outreach efforts. So we have heard a few promising strategies that I think are inspirational and there's a lot to be learned from them. A couple of those are rural communities are engaging trusted spokespersons, so community health workers in communities and faith-based leaders, those who know the community, are of the community, know the culture of the community, and they're leveraging those relationships in order to support vaccine rollout efforts. Specifically, we heard that community health workers are being used to provide education. Mm -hmm. We heard that faith-based leaders are volunteering and staffing vaccination sites. So how awesome is it to pull up to a vaccination site and see a familiar and a trusted face? Um, other things that we heard are communities are planning mobile strategies to reach those who may need more or different support with accessing the vaccine. And another, I think, inspirational promising practice that I, I find really exciting is that there have been innovative solutions to build the workforce around this. So building workforce capacity to distribute the vaccine to more people. There are pe communities who are using emergency medical services to get the vaccine to people and people to the vaccine, um, and even using medical school students and others in the communities that can offer shots. So Bill, what Tanisa is talking about is, and we use this word a lot, a holistic approach, and one that also includes a lot of public and private community partnerships. Yes, and I think and we're seeing that in multiple states. For example, Tanisa mentioned medical students, North Carolina. Um, universities in North Carolina are training their medical students to administer vaccines in underserved areas. Uh, Wisconsin is now allowing dentists who, once they're properly trained, to administer vaccines. Um, Connecticut is actually doing something similar with veterinarians. Um, so they're, that, that, that are trained, they have to be trained to, to give the, the vaccine. I, I know this because my cousin is a veterinarian. No, oh, hey, <laughs> my eyebrows um, did perk up a little bit, but hey, if I can yes. take Ridley in to get his regular shots and I get a shot, hey, why not? And then also I just mentioned that um, that in many states, including Georgia, pharmacists can administer mm -hmm. vaccines. Let me get your thoughts on this, you all, before we start to wrap up, because if the goal and now President Biden has talked about this, that somehow this nation may return, could possibly return to some sense of normalcy by July 4th, which is a big holiday, obviously, in this nation through your lens. What needs to happen between now and then as it relates to getting shots in arms. And I'll start with you, Bill. I think that it's important that as more and more states open up eligibility to all adults, which President Biden has set as a goal for May 1st, as that occurs, it's important um, that vaccine centers and providers in low-income and diverse areas have the appropriate number of appointments and doses available for the populations that they serve. I think that's probably the most important thing to, to, for states to get a hold of to ensure an equitable distribution. Tanisa, I'll give you the last word. 
Yeah, I want to touch on the point that Bill just mentioned, which is equitable distribution. I think the ultimate goal is to ensure that there is equitable distribution of the vaccine and that everyone who is eligible for it can access it. So this is going to mean, again, addressing the needs of those without Internet, but also those without transportation, those who may be homebound or homeless, those without English as a first language, et cetera. So as eligibility has expanded, the ultimate goal is still to ensure that there is equitable distribution for everyone. And how much of all of what you all just said is also wrapped up in lessons learned from this pandemic in terms of public health policy? I think a lot of of it, Rose, is really being able to pay attention to, as you said, to to what we are learning and what we're learning from this pandemic, that as um, things happen in the future and hopefully not something like a pandemic or anything this severe, but any emergency response that happens or if there are broader public health goals and concerns, that we really take a look at everything that we have learned from this pandemic and be able to carry those things forward so that we can address even better, I think, uh, situations like this in the future. Bill, lessons learned. I think I'll end on this with another state example. Michigan, early on in the pandemic last year, recognized that there was a lot of uh, misinformation, particularly in diverse uh, African-American communities. And Michigan actually set up a task force to partner with community leaders across the state to um, dispel that information, to get out supplies that were needed, such as masks and hand sanitizer. And now Michigan is taking advantage of that same network to get the word out about the vaccine. All right. Well, July 4th, we shall all see where we are as a nation. From Georgia State University, Bill Rencher, Senior Research Associate with the Georgia Health Policy Center. Tanisa Adimu, Assistant Project Director with the Center. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good information. We'll bring you back when we reach that July 4th mark and we'll see where we are. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at WABE.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.